Hi there, friends. This is the ninth in our series on discovering the dynamics of prayer. Today, we're going to talk about prayer and faith. We can't talk about prayer without talking about faith. Uh, in our last session, we talked about what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And we saw that it is praying from a position that is consistent with his person, consistent with his nature, consistent with his will and with his purpose. And it's kind of teaming up with him um, to do what he is attempting to do in the world. And he has chosen for us to ask him to do what it is he wants to do. It's to pray in a way that is consistent with God's purpose. It's praying standing in his place. Um, it's asking for what he would ask for. It's asking for what Jesus would ask for if he were standing there. So when we use his name, we use it being consistent with his desires. If we are going to stand in that position, we must trust him. And we must trust his power. We must trust his will trust his purpose, and we trust his promise and his plans. And so we trust that he knows better than we do. So we team with him. We team up with him to accomplish what he knows needs to be accomplished. In the model prayer, Jesus said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So we're taught to pray that. We're taught to say, what we're saying is, Father, whatever honors your name, whatever advances your kingdom and, and accomplishes your will, that's how we really pray. That is what God is watching for. Now, we have uh, a lot of terms, and one of the terms that we know is the prayer of faith, the prayer of faith. Uh, turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to the book of James, way back toward the end of the New Testament. And in chapter 1, let's look for just a minute at James' teaching on prayer. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously, without reproach, and it will be given him but let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man or that person expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Then in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, <clears throat> He says, you lust and you do not have. So you commit murder and you are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, he goes on to stop. So let's just stop right there in verse three. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Then in James chapter five, verses 13 through 18, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over it. Let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man or a righteous person can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it didn't rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So we see 
that Elijah's praying gives us a clear example and an illustration of what it means to pray with faith. The prayer of faith is to ask God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. So this tells us that before we can pray with faith, we've got to know what God has said in his word. I'll say it again. The prayer of faith is to ask God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. The struggle is not to convince God to give us what we want. Sometimes we think like that. Uh, The struggle is in wrestling with God's word until we know his will, until we know his will, so that we can pray that will back to him. John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do. Well, what does it mean to stand in Jesus' place, to ask in his name? It means to ask according to his will. Uh, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 22 says, all things you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. 1 John 5 chapter 14 says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Prayer expresses faith. If we have faith, we want to pray. And faith and prayer are inseparable. But what is faith? What what does that mean? You know, we need to look at this because misunderstanding faith has caused many prayers, praying people to lose heart because maybe they, sometimes we don't understand, we don't grasp what God is telling us that the prayer of faith really is. Sometimes we may be taught that we need to stir up faith. And there's a right time and a right way to do that. I think there's a scripture that says to stir up faith, but, but that's not what we do when we're going to pray prayers of faith. Um, we're, we're kind of taught sometimes that faith is, is a feeling that can be worked up. Uh, have you been taught, if you can just believe hard enough, you can make God do anything? What it really means is if you can just believe hard enough, you can make God do anything you want him to do. Well, it's up to you in that mindset. You've got to believe hard enough to impress God to make him respond. That's not good teaching. That's not teaching that's in keeping with the word of God. That's what I call pep rally faith. It's emotional faith that we're trying to to build up and spew out so that God will look at us and say, oh, look at that. That's not in scripture. It's not in God's word. Maybe you're one that's had an experience where you've believed with all your might that God would perform in a way that seemed best to you. Maybe you've even figured out how God could be glorified in your will. And and maybe you've been able to wrap some scripture verses around what it is you want. And so maybe you were one of those, maybe you thought you could, if you spoke it out loud, you could make God accountable. That you could, you could, that God would think that it would hurt his reputation if he didn't answer your prayer. Well, All of that's done with the best intentions, with hearts that are pleading to God for something. But true faith only has one focus, one focus, and that is God himself. True faith has one focus, that is God. So prayer is about releasing the power of God for the purposes of God, not for my purposes, Certainly it's okay for me to share my heart with God and to tell him what I want and what I think I need. But then I've got to be willing to delve into God and into his word to find out what his perspective is on that. Faith in Christ is the basis of all praying. Prayer is absolutely dependent upon faith. But the faith is in God. It's not in our faith. Um. The idea of what God 
ought to do and ought not to do and how, she, how he should do it, that's not a part of faith. The faith is God showing us who he is and what he will do, what he can do, and what we can ask him for in his name. So, now, now, we must understand that when God begins to respond to prayers of faith, he releases his power to accomplish his purpose in each individual situation. Um, if two believers who love God maybe have the same prayer need in their lives and pray with equal fervency and equal faith, uh, they may not get the same answer. Uh, suppose for a minute that we've got two godly people and both of them need jobs. Maybe they both pray alike. They pray with the same fervency. They pray with the same faith. They pray claiming the same promises. And one gets a good job and a good promotion and the other one doesn't. What's the difference? Or suppose sometimes in a like situation, two sets of parents have sick children. They're both Christian, sets of Christian parents, and they pray in Jesus' name for that child to be healed, and one is and one isn't. What's going on? What's going on? God's purpose in each situation is worked out differently. His purposes are worked out differently in our own unique situations. God doesn't use a one-size-fits-all approach to answering prayer. Uh, God's agenda is always bigger than our immediate circumstances. It takes faith to see that. It takes faith to believe that, to rest in that. The immediate circumstances merge with God's huge eternal agenda. Imagine for a minute a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. Uh, we focus, when we're putting that puzzle together, we focus on a single piece. It's shape, that single piece has a place in that big puzzle, but that one piece fits into a huge picture, which is not really seen until the puzzle is finished. Faith says, I believe in God. I know that all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep his covenant. That is Psalm 25, verse 10. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful to those who keep his covenant. We've already talked about what it means to be in covenant with the Lord Jesus. And then in Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18, we see that God's thoughts concerning us are amazing. And if we could count them, they would number more than the grains of sand. That's a lot. That's a lot. So faith says, I believe in God, but it also says, I believe God. I believe him. I believe him. I believe his love. I believe his commitment toward me as a covenant partner. And I believe in his power. I know that he is in the process of bringing his best plan into my life. That's his nature. That's who he is. That's what he wants to do. He wants to love us in practical ways. He's using this circumstance in our lives to accomplish something that he could do no other way. So it's always good to lean into the Lord, to seek him, to bow before him and say, ask him, what is it that you want to accomplish in this circumstance in my life, whether it's a good circumstance or a difficult circumstance. Get this now. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a feeling. It is a decision. It is a, an intelligent choice. It is something we decide. And you know, I can still feel uncertain. I can still feel afraid but choose faith. So my feelings don't always reveal my position in faith. Um, as we grow and mature in faith, our feelings are going to begin 
more and more to match our faith, but feelings are not the measure of faith. Um, we as people want to use feelings as a measure of so many things. Um, sometimes you might ask a person, do you know if you're saved? And their answer might be, well, I feel like I am. Well, that's not enough. What's going to happen if you get up tomorrow with pneumonia and you don't feel saved? You don't feel like it. Does anything change? No. What is it? What is our decision based on? It's based on the Word of God, the promises of God, and what He says, and not how I feel. Andrew Murray, who is a great, great writer, an incredible theologian, godly theologian, said, the prayer of faith comes from the life of faith. When we're living faith, prayers of faith just emerge from that life of faith. Faith is a way of living. It is a focus. It is a decision to walk according to the Word of God, regardless of how we feel about it. It's a commitment that we make. Uh, maybe some of you who are married, maybe some days you just don't feel so married, but you still are. You're married. And so faith is given to us. God gives us faith <clears throat> at salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. So when we're saved, God gives us a measure of faith. Excuse me. Faith is not something we get out and dust off when we want something from God. Uh, it's not something that we just kind of hold on to and don't pay any attention to until we think we want to impress God or ask God for something. Faith is a way of living. It is a lifestyle. It is not believing something. Faith is believing someone. And that would be God himself. All the resources of heaven are available to us as children of God. Living by faith allows us to receive those resources and use them. Uh, suppose somebody handed me a check uh, for a million dollars. Would I be a millionaire? No. I would have a check that said a million dollars. I would not become a millionaire until I cash that check or put it in my bank account, transferring it from the giver's account into my account. Then I am a millionaire. I can access that million dollars. Then and only then could I begin to draw cash from that million dollars. Now, when the person handed me the check, I had two choices. I could look at it and think, ooh, there's a check for a million dollars. Look at that and put it in my desk drawer and go on working, trying to earn money. <clears throat> or I could take that check and put it in my bank account and use it. So when you were saved, when you were born into the family of God, you became a joint heir with Jesus. Your joint heir with Jesus of the Father's riches. That is Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. <clears throat> so I can choose whether to access and use that or not. It was put to my account. Well, how do I access the heavenly resources that are available to me as a child of God? I obey what God says. I obey what God says. So one of the things we need to know about faith is that faith is obedient. Faith and obedience are partners. They walk together. Faith behaves. Faith acts. And so faith says, Lord, what would you have me do? That's faith. That's different from me deciding on a good plan and thinking, Oh, that, that, that seems good to me. That's, that's what I'll go do. And then going to the Lord and say, would you bless this? I've decided I'm going to do this. Would you bless it? That's not faith. 
not biblical faith. So faith is obedient. Now, the 11th chapter of Hebrews, why don't you just turn there with me since you're already in James. It's just a few pages back from the book of James. The 11th chapter of Hebrews is about faith. And it tells us how faith looks in the lives of real people. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, what does it tell us? By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Well, how did Abel know what to do? How did Abel know what sacrifice to offer? God told him. And Scripture implies that Cain knew also. But they both made different choices. Cain did not act on what he knew. Abel acted on what God told him. So his obedience is called faith. Hebrews chapter 11, going down there to verse 7. By faith, Noah did what? He built an ark. Well, did Noah just think one day, well... I think I'll go out here and build an ark. Um, God should be really impressed with that. And I know it'll take a long time, but I just think I'm going to go out here and build an ark. I think God would probably like that. No, that's not what he did. God told Noah to build an ark. And Noah obeyed and God called it faith. Faith. Look down there in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place where he was to receive for which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. God called Abraham, Abraham obeyed. How did he do that? By faith. In each case, God initiated a call. He initiated an instruction. And in each case, these people obeyed and they wound up in God's hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. The obedience, listen to me, the obedience provided God a way to show his power on earth. The obedience provided a way for God to show his power on earth. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 29. Go on down here and let's look at this. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. Now, the children of Israel had left Egypt and they found themselves in an impossible situation. Uh, Pharaoh's army was after them. Um, they had no protection. They had no way of escape, nowhere to go. Um, turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Let's just go look at it. All the way to the front of your Bible. Exodus chapter 14, and let's just read about it. Exodus 14, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before um, Pihirath. I'm making up that um, pronunciation. Between Migdal and the sea, you shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now, that is a critical verse because that tells us God had a plan. And this is what the plan was. And he told them, he says uh, there in verse 4, verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people and said, what have we done? We've let these Israelites go from serving us. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. 
And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, saying, uh, King of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel. And the sons of Israel were going out boldly, and the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them by camping by the sea beside Pi-hirath in front of Baal-Zephon. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. And the sons of Israel did what? Cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, it's because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness. Why, why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone, just let us serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you'll never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Now go back and remember verse four. What we want to know from verse four is that God had a plan. See it? Look at it again. Verse four, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So God had a plan. But here, here's what's interesting. This spoke to my heart. I hope it will speak to yours. God had a plan, but he didn't just do it. God could have just done it on his own, no help. But instead, he said to Moses, go back up here to um, verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Move. And as for you, Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And as for me, God, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go on in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen, ungodly people, unbelievers. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of the Lord, and the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind him. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel that there was the cloud along with the darkness. Yet it gave light at night and thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. <clears throat> then the Egyptians took up their pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for watch. The Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. The Lord is fighting for them against us. Well, what did God said? He says, I'm going to use this so that they will know that I am the Lord. There it is. Then the Lord said to Moses, you stretch out your hand over the sea 
so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Let me ask you a question. Did Moses' staff drive the sea back and then turn it to dry land? Was the power in the staff? No. God drove the sea back. When Moses exercised faith by obedience, the power and the provision of God showed up. Obedience. Faith based obedience. Moses just didn't get a good idea and ask God to bless it. Moses did what God said do. Let me show you another one. Joshua chapter 3. It's just about hmm, half an inch to the right of where you are in the book of Exodus. Joshua chapter 3. Here's, here again the Israelites needed to cross the Jordan River. And uh, Joshua 3, verse 8, God gives an instruction. He says, You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Now, I'm told that the Jordan at this time of year is a rapidly flowing current. So it could be like, do what? Stand still in that, in that rapidly flowing current. Yes, that's what God said. You, When you come to the edge, you stand still in the river, in the Jordan River. Well, go down to verse 15. Um, start in verse 14. So it came about when the people set out their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, here it is, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, that the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. Same thing. God spoke. He said, this is what you do. And when the people obeyed, then the power of God was able to come to earth to benefit his people. Go to the New Testament, Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. In this chapter, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And as he was going to a certain village, 10 lepers met him on the way and they cried out to him, called out to him for mercy. Uh, go down to um, verse, 
um, 11. Luke 17, 11. And it came about while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when Jesus saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And it came about that as they were going, as they were obeying, they were cleansed. They were cleansed. Their obedience released the power and provision of God. Uh, you remember the story of maybe Peter on uh, Lake Gennesaret uh, when they were out fishing and they'd been fishing and fishing and fishing and Jesus, and they hadn't caught anything. Jesus says, cast your nets on the other side. And they did. And when they did, they had this huge draw of fish. Uh, in John chapter 9, um, we're so close, let's just go there. John chapter 9, verse 1. Um, John 9, verse 1, And as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus said, It wasn't either one. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. God had a plan. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay out of the spittle and applied the clay to the blind man's eyes. And Jesus said to him, Now go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent, and so the blind man went away and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, uh, is that the man, is that the one that used to sit out there and beg? And others were saying, well, yeah. Uh, and some others were saying, no, uh, it's just somebody that looks like him. And Jesus, the, the blind man said, kept saying, I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm he. And so, therefore, they were saying to him, how were your eyes opened? How did you do that? What happened? How did that happen to you? And he said, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and washed. And so I did. And I received sight. The obedience of faith. This is the kind of faith that rolls away the stone of a Lazarus. You remember the story where the stone was rolled away. Lazarus had been dead three days. And, and that's an incredible story from which we can learn a lot of things. But one of the things that this is a good time to notice is that sometimes faith has to wait a minute, longer than a minute. You remember the story, uh, Lazarus was sick and the sisters tried to get word to Jesus to come quickly that Lazarus was sick and Jesus delayed going. Um, he had other stuff that the father wanted him to do. And so um, what happened was, and, and this is a principle, the delay of Jesus brought about a greater good. The delay of Jesus, instead of Jesus rushing there to heal Lazarus when he was sick, Lazarus died. They had buried him. He had been in the grave four days. And what did Jesus do instead? He raised him from the dead. And we begin to learn what Jesus said when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
What are the circumstances in your life that look overwhelming and impossible? You got some? Most of us do. Let's do this. Let's take our own overwhelming and impossible circumstances and hold them against the backdrop of God's power and love. I assure you, it's not that he cannot. We may need to lean into him to know the plan, to know the purpose. We can know that it is not a lack of God's love, that it is not a lack of God's notice. Every difficulty in life is a place of opportunity for God to show up and display his power. The life of faith is a life of rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. That's a, this, a simple, probably too simple way to say that is that we got to learn how to stop trying and start trusting. God intends for us to rest, not from his work, from, from our own work, from my own good ideas, from my things that I decide I want to do and try to get God to bless. God says, you need to rest from that. We rest in the fact that God is doing his work through us, our job, is to be in his word, to listen to him, to hear his voice, and to just do what he says. We are in, we are, we are the clothing. We're the attire for God's activity. So the goal is that the world would be able to look at us believers and see what God is doing. But we've got to believe him, and we've got to obey what he tells us to do no matter if it looks dumb to us. Rest does not mean inactivity. Did you hear me? Rest does not mean inactivity. Living a life of faith means that we are actively and aggressively living out the activity of Jesus. Resting means that I'm resting from my own stuff but I'm busy doing his stuff. In, in that kind of life, our minds and our emotions are going to be at rest because what are we doing? I can rest knowing I don't have to come up with my own plans. I don't have to come up with my own provision. I don't have to come up with all the stuff that, that the world tells me I need to come up with. What I do is that I can rest in him and his promises and his work, and I can do that without anxiety and insecurity. When I am anxious, I need to look to the Lord and say, where am I not believing you? What am I not believing about you? What am I not trusting here? Show me my heart the way you see it. So when activity is directed by God, our minds and our emotions can be at rest in his promises. If God tells us to do something and how to do it, we just can go on and do it and not try to figure it out, not try to worry about it. In order to take possession of the land God had given his children, the Israelites needed to take the city of Jericho. Uh, Jericho was protected by this huge wall, thick wall. It was impossible to penetrate the wall, and there was no way for a human to get in. They let people come and go. And so the question is, what possibly could collapse the walls of Jericho? So God said to uh, Joshua, go in there, and take down the walls of Jericho. How am I going to do that? Can an army do it? No. Does military strength do it? No. Does physical strength? Do, no. 
And so what is it that's going to cause the walls of Jericho to come down? There was not a human force mighty enough to take down the walls of Jericho. If we were still in Hebrews 11, I'd say look at verse 30. Hebrews 11 verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell. By faith the walls of Jericho fell. Now, I want you to go back to the book of Joshua. Close to the front, about an inch from the beginning of the, of the Bible. Joshua chapter 6 and verse 2. You know, I've got to start in verse 1. Now, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. They didn't want them coming in there. So no one went out and no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. Do you see the tense of that? Now, what's Joshua doing? He's standing there looking at the wall. And God says, what? I have delivered. It's already done. It is in my plan. I have already delivered Jericho into your hands. And then he told Joshua exactly what to do. He says, here, here we go, Joshua. Here's what you're going to do. Verse 3, you, Joshua, shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. And you're going to do that for six days. And also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all of the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people will go up every man straight ahead. Archaeology has proven that to be true. For a long time, there were people who thought, no, a wall can't just collapse and fall flat. A wall's either going to fall forward or backward. Well, guess what? They finally were able to excavate the city of Jericho, and guess what? Wow, the walls fell flat. Flat. Joshua and the people did exactly what God had commanded. Did you get it? God says, I've given you, I've, I'm giving you this. I've delivered this into your hand, but here's what you have to do. Here's, here it is. One, two, three, four. This is what you do. You know what that is? That's wall tumbling faith. Wall tumbling faith is lived out in obedience to what God says. Let's think about this. What causes us to be anxious? We all have it sometimes. What causes us to be anxious? You know, um, usually it's situations that we can't control. Guess who can? God. We might, might be anxious because an outcome looks uncertain. Well, I guess some of these outcomes looked uncertain if you looked at them with the eyes of the world, but when you Look at them with the eyes of faith and God says, hey, I've already done this. This is what I need for you to do. Maybe we sometimes feel anxious about feeling anxious. You feel guilty about feeling anxious or, or maybe we're trying really hard not to feel anxious. Maybe our efforts to stop worrying are blocking our faith. Our focus is in the wrong place. My focus is on my anxiety and on my worry instead of where? On God. Do we need more faith? All of us do. But how do I get it? Don't try 
to rev it up in some fleshly way. It ain't going to work. That's not God's faith. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If your faith is weak, you need to do what the disciples did and say to Jesus, increase my faith. Then get in the word. Lord, show me what your word is saying. Speak to me through this word. Let me hear you. And take the time to listen to his voice in his word. In his word. Ask him to let you hear him speak. And then do what he says. One more quick thing. Maybe you are in a place in your life where you're weighed down knowing that you haven't done everything right. Maybe you're weighed down knowing that you have not really dealt with your sin, that you really got unresolved guilt. I want to tell you, this has been on my mind. Unresolved guilt will mess you up. It will mess up your mind. It will mess up your emotions. And so sometimes we're weighed down by knowing that we have messed up. Maybe it was years ago, and we're sorry we did it, but it's still on our minds. Maybe we're just weighed down by knowing. Maybe you think, you know what? Because of that, I can't pray. God's not going to hear me. There's some characters in the Bible who knew, even in their bad behavior, they knew to turn to God. David, King David was one. He knew to go to God. One of the reasons David was a man after God's own heart was because God, David faithfully went back to God when he sinned. And he was a man after God's own heart. But some of these people knew to turn to God no matter what, even in their sin, even in their mistakes. And so no matter how far from God they departed, however sinful they might have been, when trouble came, it was spontaneous. They knew to call on God because they knew God. They believed in God. They believed in the power of God. They just hadn't walked in it. They messed up. And as a rule, when they turned back to God, he heard their cries. I want to give you one example of this. Turn with me to Judges. Judges chapter 16. Just right after Joshua. Judges chapter 16. This incident comes at the end of Samson's life. Samson had formed a relationship with an unbeliever, a Philistine woman named Delilah. And she was up to no good with Samson, and he fell for it. And she finally, after, after three tries... She finally got Samson to tell her where his immense strength came from. Uh, Samson's strength is whew, indescribable. You can go back and read about it here in the book of Judges, but he had indescribable strength. And so everybody was always saying, well, where does he get that? How does he get that? So Denila gets really kind of in with him, you know, and she says, after she's asked him three times and he wouldn't tell her. But this time, he finally tells her that his immense strength is in his hair, which had never been cut. Now, I don't have an explanation for that, except that that was God's plan. That's what he did. Well, she deprived Samson of his great physical power by cutting his hair. And when she did, Samson went weak as dishwater. They put out his eyes. They made fun of him. They paraded him around town and laughed at him, laughed at his God. It really, they thought they had really, really won. But look in Judges chapter 16 and verse 25. Well, look at 24 because it tells you where they're coming from. When the people saw Samson, they praised their God, who was Dagon. 
our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. Now, it so happened they were praising their idol, their God. And it so happened when they were high in spirits that they said, bring Samson in here. Let him amuse us. Let us just look at him and make him do some things that we can make fun of him. So they called for Samson from the prison and he entertained them and they made him stand between pillars in the temple. Pillars, huge, huge columns that held the pillars up. Verse 26, then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand because Samson was blind, he said, let me just feel these pillars on which this house rests. Let me just lean against them. And the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. They're worshiping their idol and laughing at Samson and Samson's God. And then Samson, who had made a big mistake, called out to the Lord because he knew that was what to do. And he said, Oh, Lord God, Please remember me, and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, one with his right hand, the other with his left, and Samson said to God, let me die with the Philistines and he bent with all his might and he pushed those pillars down and the house fell on all the lords and all the people were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. He knew where to go when he was in trouble, even though he was not living an obedient, holy life. Jonah's another one. You know the story of Jonah? Jonah prayed from the belly of a large fish. Where'd he wound up? He had been running from the Lord. He was disobeying the Lord. The Lord was giving him an instruction. He says, "Mm -mm, I'm not going to do that. And so he was disobeying God, and so he wound up being swallowed by this big fish. Mm. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah, in his sin, in his mistakes, what did he do? He called out to God. He seemed hopelessly lost. How do you get out of the belly of a fish? What's going to keep you from drowning? How are you going to do this? But, but he cried out to God. And the Lord spoke to the fish. That's what the Bible says. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. Mm. If you are in that place where you've not been walking with the Lord, but you need help, if you will bow before him and ask him, he will meet you where you are. If you want to live in the power of God with minimal anxiety, there are times when we all have trouble with little faith. There's faith, there's no faith, there's little faith, then there's not faith. Whatever category we're in, if we want to walk in the power of God, then we're going to obey what God says to you. He says, do not commit adultery, we're not going to commit adultery. He says, do not steal, we're not going to steal. He says, be kind to your enemies, we're going to be kind to our enemies. Because it makes any sense to us? No, because he said so. And that's what releases faith and releases the power of God to the earth. The decision is ours. First of all, we need to know him. We need to be his child. But telling Jesus we want him to be our savior and then we bow before him and we just constantly say what is it you want me to do and there are going to be times when he's going to say something and we're going to say do what 
but we're going to stay before him and let him deal with our hearts. And he will accomplish much through his people whom he calls his body, the church, to put his power in the world to make a change. Let's pray. Lord, increase our faith. Amen.